0: Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. I'm very excited to introduce Kendra. She has been a part of ECHO in so many different ways. She used to be a staff member here, pastor, when I joined staff. And since then, she just always gives of her time and her heart, and we have these great conversations about God's word all the time. I'm always excited by her perspective and how she makes me think. And she may not remember, but years ago, she's like, you know, maybe I'd like to preach a sermon someday. And I held on to that, didn't let that fact go, and brought it up to her whether she remembered or not, <laughs> because I know God has placed a lot of great things on our heart, so we're glad to have Kendra share with us this morning. Hello. Good morning, everybody. All right, so some of you who know me might know that I enjoy cracking open a good hymnal, um, I grew up in a little country church about, a north, uh, about an hour northeast of Cincinnati. And um, we sang from a little red book called Favorite Hymns of Praise, which I thought I had a copy of at my house. Um, I had great hymns of the faith. So this is, you're going to pretend this is um, favorite hymns of praise. It's red. It's a little red book. It was, um, so when I was growing up, this was our sole source of worship material um, for Sunday mornings until I was in about the fifth grade when my preacher took the liberty of printing out some lyrics for um, some contemporary worship songs at the time, like, Here I Am to Worship, and I Am a Friend of God. If you know it, you know it. <laughs> and he, he bound them together in um, these 8 by 11 red folders, um, and then we would sing along with them with a CD-ROM as like our backing track. So that was really like the next step for us um, when I was in high school. And, um, but yeah, I just, I enjoy a good hymnal. I've always enjoyed hymns. Um, so similarly to what Steve was saying a few weeks ago in his sermon um, when he was, a, he was talking about his own church experiences. So I had, um, I remember there was an organ, and still is, there's an organ on one side, a piano on the other, and in the middle, in between them, behind the pulpit, stood the song leader. I watched this individual with great awe as I learned to sing along with some centuries-old hymn texts and some newer 20th-century gospel songs. Um, I mimicked my mother's alto line until I eventually understood how to harmonize myself. And when I was in high school, I was finally asked to join the ranks as Kendra Westrick, song leader. (laughs) And since my mom couldn't find any pictures of me leading music at church, I don't think that the cameras on the cell phones weren't good quality yet. Um, I, think, I feel I owe you a demonstration. So I do need to get on my, my aunt's hair poof. And Casey, you let me know when it's high enough here. It's about 2008, I think. Is this high enough? Okay, okay, okay. All right. <sighs> For Hymn of Decision, Hold in Readiness, Hymn 87, First, Second, and Last Verses, Standing on the Last. And Jimmy Smith will be bringing our special music, Hymn 87. Thank you. All right, as I said, this hymnal contained both hymns and gospel songs. So is there a difference, you ask? There is a slight difference, but it kinda depends who you ask, the answer you're gonna get. Um, Essentially, hymn texts are gonna be a little more dense. They're gonna be like a poem set to music with simple rhythm and no chorus, really. Um, It will feel a bit more formal in the sound and the subject matter. So think of something like we sang at the beginning, All Creatures of Our God and King. A gospel song is going to have a chorus, um, and then you're also going to have uh, fewer words, and it's not gonna stand alone quite as well as a hymn text would. Um, so you're gonna also hear more of like that personal vibe of like this person is writing down their personal testimony of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, so think of something more like Blessed Assurance if you know how that chorus goes. This is my story, this is my song, that one. One of the gospel songs found in ha- uh, favorite hymns of praise was a song called In the Garden. It was written by a pharmacist named C. Austin Miles, who in 1913, at the age of about 24, decided he was going to leave his career as a pharmacist to become a gospel songwriter. And I bet his mom was not pleased about this. And also, I don't know how much experience you could have as a pharmacist at the age of 24. I feel like now you need a little more schooling. But it was 1892, I don't know. I guess he was established at that point. Um, Anyway, so about in the garden, Uh, we're going to have the words up on the screen here, and I'm going to give you just a minute to look them over so you can kind of get a feel for this song that he wrote. I'll scoot over so you can see them. Um, The refrain here, uh, oh wait, Ah, here, refrain, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That's like the real important part to latch on to. So this song, this gospel song, was based on a vision that C. Austin Miles had. And so I'm going to read this report that he gave to his colleague about his vision. One day, in March 1912, I was seated in the dark room where I kept my photographic equipment and organ. I drew up my Bible toward me. It opened at my favorite chapter, John 20. Whether by chance or inspiration, let each reader decide. That meeting of Jesus and Mary had lost none of its power to charm. As I read it that day, I seemed to be part of the scene. I became a silent witness to that dramatic moment in Mary's life when she knelt before her Lord and cried, "Rabbi." My hands were resting on the Bible while I stared at the light blue wall. As the light faded, I seemed to be standing at the entrance of a garden looking down a gently winding path, shaded by olive branches. A woman in white, with head bowed, hand clasping her throat as if to choke back her sobs, walked slowly into the shadows. It was Mary. As she came to the tomb upon which she placed her hand, she bent over to look in and hurried away. John, in flowing robe, appeared, looking at the tomb. Then came Peter, who entered the tomb, followed slowly by John. As they departed, Mary reappeared. Leaning her head upon her arm at the tomb, she wept. Turning herself, she saw Jesus standing. So did I. I knew it was he. She knelt before him with her arms outstretched, and looking into his face, cried, "Rabbi!" I awakened in full light, gripping the Bible, with muscles tense and nerves vibrating. Under the inspiration of this vision, I wrote as quickly as the words could be formed, the poem exactly as it since appeared. That same evening, I wrote the music. Now, though this hymn was generally well-loved as evidenced by the fact that people still sing it today, it was interestingly perceived by many, and quote, sentimental, meaningless, selfish, egocentric, or even, and here's my favorite, erotic. In all fairness, (laughs) Many of these critiques came um, from individuals who didn't realize what the garden was that he was referring to or that Mary Magdalene was the one speaking. So they were kind of like, what's this about? Even still, it could be surmised that there was some disagreement on what was the appropriate way to worship God in services. Was this more personal, sentimental approach appropriate? It seems a tension lingered between formality of religious practice and familiarity with the person of Jesus. And today we're going to look at a woman from the Gospel of John who had a similar close encounter to Jesus, the kind that maybe you've had yourself, and has maybe left you thinking, was he talking to me? Let's pray, then jump into John 4. Father God, we're so grateful to be here together this morning. I pray that as we read your word, as a community of believers, that it would sink into our hearts and our minds, and it would transform us, Um, and that we would maybe find something new and refreshing about this text today that I know a lot of us are familiar with, that we could be invited to um, explore it again and to just have open eyes and hearts um, to take in your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you'll turn with me to the book of John, um, we'll be meditating on chapter 4, verses 3 through 30, and then 39 through 42. So we'll skip down a bit at the end. Um, So feel free to grab your electronic device or you can use a Bible in the pew if you would like. We'll also have the text up here on the screen if you'd like to go that route. So the Gospel of John, which is largely accepted as being written by the Apostle John, the same John who was called as a disciple within the Gospel accounts, has personally always been my favorite um, because of how poetic John is in describing the essence of the Christian faith. So the prologue in John 1 which begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, so wonderfully and intrinsically ties the Son to the Father from the beginning to the present moment where the Word has now become flesh. The bulk of chapter 4 is going to be dealing with a conversation between Jesus and a woman of Samaria. And as we read, I invite you to take some mental notes on when the individuals in this story are more concerned with like the, the formal religious things, And when they're, they seem more concerned with familiarity with the person of God. And maybe even when those two concepts overlap, because they do sometimes. So here we go. John 4, starting in verse 3. He, Jesus, left Judea and went away again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So we'll begin here today with Jesus at the tail end of some ministry work he was doing in the Jerusalem area. And now he's heading north, back up to Galilee. Um, if you look up here, I'm going to give you the gist of the three routes that Jesus could have taken. Uh, so I'll just kind of like point here to the best. I don't have like a laser pointer. I, this morning I was like, maybe I should have brought a laser pointer. I don't know. But um, it's pretty basic. So if you see Jerusalem down there where it says Judea, the orange, look for the orange. So he's either going to be going, moving from the orange to the blue, back up to Galilee, that goldenish yellow. Or he might cross over the Jordan River to the east and go through the green and then jump back over the Jordan, back up to Galilee. Or he could have gone west from Jerusalem and gone up through the blue and into the yellow. So it's like three basic routes, right? He's either going straight north or he's kind of looping it around to the east or he's looping it around to the west. So some have asked whether or not the phrase he had to pass through Samaria implied some kind of calling, like a a spiritual calling, like he had to go that route. God told him to go that way. But it's also possible that the text here is just referring to the point that this was the most direct route from A to B, right? It was a three-day journey, though some Jewish people would have avoided it because it could have been quite violent. So many of you are familiar with the concept that the Jewish and the Samaritan people, they didn't see eye to eye. They didn't get along. And um, some of you, maybe not quite so much, but we'll get to that in a minute. That eastern route across the Jordan, now that would have taken them, um, it would have added two to four days to the journey, which on foot doesn't sound quite pleasant to me. Um, but they would have expected greater hospitality along that route, even though it would have taken a little longer. So, you know, it's kind of a trade-off, like I'm walking two more days, but the people aren't trying to kill me. The western route would have taken the longest, so maybe not quite so appealing. Usually people went the eastern route, or they just took the gamble and they went straight through Samaria. So back to the Jewish-Samaritan feud. So what's going on there? I'll preface it by saying this. I enjoy a good history class minus memorizing dates. But there were two dates drilled into my brain so hard by my Old Testament history professor that I simply could not forget them if I tried. 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., the fall of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. So for today's purposes, we're going to be talking about the north. So we also will have a map up here just to give you kind of a visual of northern and southern kingdoms. So you can see like the green, the northern, and then the blue, or not the blue. It's like it was like purple is <laughs> Judah there. Um, So that's your visual of our northern and southern kingdoms. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and many of the Jews in the region were deported. And the Israelites remaining there were intermarrying with non-Israelite people. So when when there were Jews returning to the southern kingdom after the exile, there was so much animosity towards the offspring of these intermarriages. Biblical scholar and professor of New Testament studies, D.A. Carson, writes, that the remnant returning saw Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. Harsh. This animosity between the two people groups kept burning, and the divide continued to widen, and by the time Jesus was traveling through the region, the Samaritans would have been operating out of a completely different religious culture than their Jewish counterpoints. So a couple differences that I'd like to highlight. The Samaritans refused to accept anything other than those first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. We have Genesis, Exodus, um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So those were the books that both groups were like, yeah, like, we're cool with these as holy texts. But the Samaritans, the rest of it, they were like, no thank you. The Prophets, no thanks. All right, so, and then we have um, a difference with um, the Jewish people believed in the coming Messiah. So both of these groups had kind of this like belief of this coming individual who was going to fix things. So for the Jewish people, it was the Messiah, which means deliverer or anointed one. And they saw this individual as someone who was going to fix things like on a political mighty level, like a government level, and they were going to rescue the nation. Um, But for the Samaritans, they saw the coming Taheb as more of a, a spiritual teacher. So still coming to fix things, but more on like a spiritual plane. So similar concept with some slight differences. And we'll see this play out later in the narrative, how there's some discrepancies here, um, how Jesus and the Samaritan woman are kind of operating out of a different a different context. All right, so I do just also want to briefly uh, point out to where we're talking about in uh, verses five and six, like where is John referring to? So the exact location of the city of Sychar is debated, but it's pretty close to the city of Shechem. So here's um, a final map here for you. It's, if you can see, Sychar's right there, and Shechem is right next to it. Um, and then Mount Gerizim's going to play a role here in a little bit. And you'll see uh, in the really small slanted writing, says Jacob's Well. So the site of Jacob's Well is well agreed upon. Okay, well agreed upon, get it? All right, so um, it was located less than a quarter mile southeast of Joseph's tomb, which was in the city of Shechem. All right, so significant, that's the end of the geography lesson, I promise. Um, but yeah, it's very significant to the Samaritan and the Jewish people alike, right? So Jesus is sitting by this well that was dug, dug out by none other than Jacob himself, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Like, this is, a, this is an important spot. All right, so we're gonna um, jump on to the, uh, the next verse here. Um, so we're gonna end verse six where it says, so Jesus, tired from his journey, was just sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus replied to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sixth hour of the day just means it was hot. So, in the middle of the day, a woman was coming to a well by herself to draw water. And this automatically creates the implication that she wasn't really looking to socialize with the other women of the town who would have preferred to come at a less hot point of the day, and they would have gone in groups. The woman's response of surprise is in line with what we've already discussed. Jews and Samaritans did not typically associate with one another. It's the same reason it was a bit peculiar that Jesus' disciples were off in the city buying food that Samaritans would have been handling. That was a big no-no for Orthodox Jews. But to understand her surprise even further, we have to understand just how, we're going to say yucky, Jewish men considered Samaritan women to be. Carson writes, within a generation, Jewish leaders would codify a law that reflected long-standing popular sentiment to the effect that, All the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. And even conversing with Jewish women was seen as a complete waste of time as it could lead to the fiery pits of hell because of its diversion from the study of Torah. So Jesus was really throwing all the Jewish formal orthodoxy out the window here. He's standing in the heat of the day in the middle of Samaria His followers are off buying tainted food, and he's out by this well fixing to take a drink out of a water jug owned by and touched by a, I'll let you fill in the blank with whatever you think today's modern, like don't say it out loud, but whatever you think um, someone you know might be like, oh, good heavens, he's doing what? What? This lady did not choose to be born a Samaritan woman in the first century and likely wasn't in complete control over some of the other circumstances that we'll read about here in a bit. Yet here she is, traipsing around in the middle of the day, being fully aware of just how dirty and disgusting so many other people viewed her existence to be. Let's look at how Jesus responds to her surprise. Jesus saying gift of God in verse 10 could either be referring to eternal life or the Torah. Remember those first five books of the Old Testament that she and Jesus would have agreed upon? Whichever the case, Jesus is drawing on Old Testament texts as he uses water to symbolize something of spiritual consequence. This is a pattern in the book of John. So we see it in the use of baptism, in the miracle where Jesus turns water into wine, We see it when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born of water and the Spirit. And we heard about it last week when Kelly spoke of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He's saying that the water he offers is fresh, running water, living water, something this woman would have understood as being of utmost value in her own context. Let's go to verse 11. She said to him, "'Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water?' You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty, but the water that I will give will become in him a fountain of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. The woman says, You know this well is super deep, right? How are you going to get this water? Biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce points out that the way she's asking this question, the way it's phrased in Greek, pretty much implies that she thinks the answer is no. Like, you know that you're not greater than Jacob, right? Right? You're just not. She's siding with the formal way of her upbringing here. She likely grew up hearing about this great bulwark of her heritage. I'm being a bit creative in my interpretation, but I imagine this little girl hearing stories of this bulwark of of the faith who with his own grit and determination got down in the mud and just started digging up this fresh water for himself and his families and the livestock. He was a legend. What's funny is that Jesus could have easily pointed out to her all the flaws in the human being that she was currently idolizing. Oh, Jacob? The one who greedily stole his brother Esau's birthright by covering his hands in baby goat skins and so they wouldn't feel so hairy, so he could fake that he was his brother to his dad? That guy? Oh, no, 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 no. You mean Jacob, the one who fell in love with his cousin? who he just met at a well, and then he worked seven years to marry her, and then he accidentally got married to her sister, and then he consummated the marriage before he noticed that it was her sister, and then he married the other sister anyway, and then he remained in some kind of weird married love pentagon with both of the sisters and their slaves that were also forced to sleep with him? That guy? Oh. (laughs) But it seems, it also seems that the reason that Jacob probably had to dig the well in the first place is because he didn't get along with the neighboring people because there were already a lot of natural springs in the area. So God had already supplied an abundance of water for people there, but human greed and selfishness kind of seemed to be getting in the way to where Jacob then had to find a plan B and dig a well for himself. But Jesus doesn't get snarky with her and her insistence that Jacob was greater than he. What he does say, this water in Jacob's well... I think it's going to leave you thirsty again. But I have something better. It's possible here that Jesus' response might have gotten the woman thinking about that that coming teacher, the taheb. That in the book of Numbers, it talks about this person having water flowing from his buckets. Overall, Jesus is beginning to allude to this point that there's something coming that's even more satisfying to the soul than the formal law. Jacob's well, if you will which is currently in place for the Samaritans and the Jews alike. This coming spring doesn't take away the need for water, it doesn't make us less human, but it perpetually quenches the thirst, transforming humanity into what it was always supposed to be. The woman's response, can I have some? Can I have some of the water that you're talking about? But this ain't tuck everlasting, she's not quite getting it. So Jesus takes a new route. Verse 16, he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This which you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and yet you do say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. "'Jesus said to her, "'Believe me, woman, that a time is coming "'when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. "'You Samaritans worship what you do not know. "'We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. "'But a time is coming, and even now has arrived "'when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. "'For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. "'God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit.'" And truth. Jesus takes a step closer here, this time going straight for the thing which she particularly does not want to talk about. An interesting note I read in my study is that rather than chastise the woman for not being open about everything, Jesus affirms her for the thing that she was willing to be open about. Now what I want to do here is go on this whole diatribe about how it wasn't even her fault that she was married five times probably. The sixth guy could have been forcing her to live with him. Who even knows? And women were still treated as property at this point. But all those things, I, I feel like I would be preaching to the choir a bit here. And we all know that women at this time didn't have like a ton of say in who they were or weren't married to. But I also don't want to read too much into the text, because the truth is we're just not given a lot of those details. We don't know. We don't know why the woman was married so many times. We don't know what happened to her husband. We don't know what was going on. But what we do see is Jesus bringing up a deep pain, probably a deep trauma in this woman's life, and saying, "I bet you're tired of what's been flowing your way, right? I bet you're thirsting for something different. You look exhausted." She's like, yeah, I walked all this way to get water from this well. I'm exhausted. Do you know it's hot out? So he's he's just speaking to her about this, this deeply personal thing in her life. And, yeah, I don't know. There's something really beautiful about that. Now looking to verse 19. Remember that the Samaritans didn't heed the major and the minor prophets. So for her to say, I see that you're a prophet, she might have already been getting to the point of the matter, like testing the waters, like are you the prophet? Like the one set to come after Moses? The one that I read about in our law books? But instead of continuing to place herself in a position of vulnerability by talking about these more personal things, she decides she wants to talk about some more formal things. So she's like, you're the prophet, maybe. So what about this worship situation? Give me the right answer, please. Where's the right, where's the right place to worship? The root of this dispute between where the right place to worship was um, can be found in Deuteronomy 12.5. In the Jewish reading, it says, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and you shall come there, implying that the place had already been chosen. But for the Samaritans, their version implied that the place had already been chosen. So for them, Shechem, overlooking Mount Gerizim, was at, that was where Moses had built an altar to the Lord upon entering the promised land. So they, they were thinking, like, this is the most holy site. So this is where we should be worshiping, right? But the Jews were looking at um, the fact that Solomon had first built the temple in Jerusalem. So they're like, this is the most holy site. So there's kind of this discrepancy, like, we both are wanting, like, they want, there was the desire to worship God properly in the most holy sight. That was their intention. But what was Jesus' answer to her question? He says, nope. Though he does, in verse 22, allude to the fact that the Messiah will come through the Jewish people, will be revealed through the line of the Jewish people, he also begins to speak of this glorious intention of the Creator which had already been set in motion, and yet was still unfolding piece by piece, this intent for humans to live in familiarity with the character and the person of God, whom Carson refers to as renovative, creative, and life-giving, transforming and fulfilling in a way that the formal law of Moses by itself just could not. Spirit and truth here are not separable, but two words coming together to refer to the same concept. The Spirit of God is made known and poured out onto human flesh, through the incarnation of the word of God. All right, let's jump to 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. Though she was a Samaritan who would not have typically used the word Messiah, she seems to find it appropriate to do here. Maybe she's connecting the two of them. Like now she's trying to find common ground, whereas before she was kind of like trying to point out all their differences. And here's the home run, folks, the big news. The landing of the plane. He says, that's me. And it is healing for me to personally see Jesus selecting a woman to first share this news with to the extent that we can read in Scripture. But yet I also can't help but think about Nicodemus. Remember I said we would get back to him. And we read about Nicodemus in the book, um, or in chapter 3 of the book of John, where he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night to speak with him. Now, he was a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish council at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And though from what we can read, Jesus doesn't offer such a, a blatant admission of, his, of who he is to Nicodemus, he still points out some really deep truths about who the Messiah is and what he's coming to do. That's where we get those Those familiar words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And I offer that side note to keep us thinking holistically, to remember that God's pursuit of humanity is so vast that he would reveal deep spiritual truths both to the Jewish teacher of the law and to this woman who Nicodemus would have believed to be subhuman, Verse 27, And at this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What are you seeking? Or, Why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is he? They left the city and were coming to him. So the disciples, for whatever reason, seemed to think it wasn't worth questioning, why Jesus was conversing with a hell-inducing menstruant. Perhaps they were accustomed to Jesus' unorthodox teachings and interactions, or maybe they were just hot and tired, and they didn't feel like arguing. And now, remarkably, this woman who supposedly had no interest in being social is running into town telling multiple people about this guy who knew more about her than she deemed possible by coincidence. I suppose this was before people could dig up dirt about you via social media, like the county auditor's website. I don't know. And the response of the neighbors, let's go meet this guy. Let's jump to verse 39. Now, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the savior of the world. So here at the conclusion of the narrative, we really see all formality fading into a family gathering. The Samaritans who, they have believed the testimony of this woman who as far as we can tell wasn't the most popular lady in town. And Now not only are they inviting a Jewish rabbi to dinner, but they're upholding her testimony. And after two days of gaining familiarity with the word become flesh, they conclude that he is who he says he is. This term, savior of the world, was not exclusive to Judea. It was a term used by other cultures as well. The Greeks used it to refer to certain gods. It was used to refer to certain Roman emperors. So for John to highlight the phrase here is to show that through the ministry in Samaria, Jesus is extending the reach of his mission. A mission that does not adhere to the boundaries of particular nationalities and cultures, but that Jesus truly has come into the world to offer his renovative, creative, and life-giving spirit to all people in all places. So what do we leave with from this narrative today? I'd like to ask you two questions. Does Jesus want to speak to me? Yes. This story is a helpful reminder of a concept we talk about a lot in church, right? We say things like, Lord, let our ears be open to what you have to say and be near to us, Lord. But do we actually believe Jesus is eager to speak to us as he was this woman? Do we believe he looks at us as individuals and wants to offer us refreshment and restoration and renewal? Do we believe he wants us to ask him the hard questions? And even more so, do we expect that he will respond with answers that maybe we weren't expecting or maybe we were hoping he would say something different? I think we have this responsibility as followers of Christ to find that balancing act between viewing our relationship with Jesus as both corporal and personal, as both part of a larger formal church tradition and as something we had to decide all on our own. And what can get lost in those more formal questions about Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem, and I know this church, and I know we're all big thinkers, and I know we all like a good commentary, and that's great. I love a good commentary. But sometimes what we lose in some of those questions is just this reality that the spirit of the living God dwells inside those who put their trust in Jesus, That Jesus wants to speak directly into our lives and that he wants to walk with us and talk with us and tell us that we are his own. That he wants to provide us directly with that living water. And in line with that thinking comes my next question to you. Does Jesus want to speak through me? I spent the first 20 years of my life really wrestling with what that question meant because of some concerns that others had with formality being told it was out of line with scripture for me to lead in certain ways. Sure, I was instructed to speak about Jesus on a day-to-day kind of way, or even to sing about him from behind this pulpit. As long as I, as a woman, was not speaking from behind this pulpit. Um, And I made some some good friends help carry this very heavy pulpit up onto the stage, and move it around, it's very, very heavy, um, so that I could say that for that one sentence, really. Um, I spent the next 10 years of my life resisting this pulpit out of fear and a deep subconscious insecurity that I could not do so. It wasn't in me. But this year, I decided to listen to the voice of God which has been calling me to attempt this for some time. This year I decided to believe that Jesus could speak through me however and wherever the spirit of truth called me. And don't we all have those things? It might not be delivering a sermon up here for you, but surely there's something, right? There's some way that Jesus has been asking you to speak into someone else's life that you've been resisting. Because when we don't resist that, when we, when we kind of lean into it, And that whole thing turns into one big cycle of overflowing water, doesn't it? When all the believers, as part of the body, open themselves up to familiarity with Jesus and contribute to the whole, and then the entirety of the body, in turn, refreshes the individuals within it. It's taken me a long time to unravel some of those things that have kept me silent, and to speak on things that I felt I couldn't. And I wonder if this woman felt similarly, and maybe you can relate. But please believe me, Jesus does want to speak through you to those around you. And he has things to tell you as you meditate on scripture, as you worship with your fellow believers. He desires for you not just to understand the formalities of your faith tradition, but to dig deeper to that place where everlasting waters flow. The waters of life eternal, found in the spirit of the living God who offers renewal through Jesus, the planter and harvester, the beginning and end of a spring welling up, to perennial refreshment. And as we enter into a time of communion, I invite all to come forward and partake in remembering the life, the death, and the blessed resurrection of the God who desires to speak to and through whomever he so desires. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are in awe of your goodness, of your mercy, of the way that you invite us all to take part in this story that you want to speak with us and be close to us, Jesus. That you want us to know you and be known by you and that you have things to tell us and things that you want us to communicate to those around us for your glory, for your transformation of creation into the thing it was always supposed to be, that we as a people would be near to you and know your heart And be one with you. We are your children and we're so thankful and so grateful for this opportunity to worship together. Be with us in this time of communion that we could meditate on the sacrifice of you, Jesus, coming to earth, becoming flesh, and living with us and dying and raising back to life. That we may have life eternal, living water. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Wanted Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.